fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Untreated Media Podcast. This is episode 55, our favorite horror movie heroes, because yes, the bad guys can be fun, but at the end of the day, you want to be able to cheer for the good guys in order to survive and save the day from whatever monsters or evils are in the world. Um, unfortunately, Josh let me know pretty late in the game that a medical emergency came up with him that he may not be able to function too well um, for this week's episode. He may have injured himself at wrestling training, but he let me know. And thankfully, I was able to find a late game sub-in for Josh this week for our main discussion with my wife, Heather. Um, she'll be joining us for the main discussion, but for now, for the news, just me. So, sorry. But we've got a lot of news to go over, um, starting us off with Kevin Feige. We all know he is the head honcho for the MCU over um, over at Marvel for, D- uh, for Disney. Not DC. Disney, I mean. Sorry. Uh, he just got a promotion. How do you say? Because that man already runs the world. What do you give uh, a man that already owns the world? Well, you give him the title of Chief Creative Officer. Uh, what does that mean? Kevin Feige, up until this point, has been in charge of the MCU over at Marvel. But Marvel has other categories, obviously. They have comics, they've got TV, they've got video games, they've got this, that, and other thing. Well, now Kevin Feige apparently is in charge of all of that as well. He's not just in charge of the MCU. He's now taking over responsibilities for television. He was never responsible for the Netflix stuff. That's why it was never connected to the MCU. He's now in charge of television, um, animation, uh, the comics. He's in charge of it all now. And honestly, I think this is a, it's both a good and a bad thing, potentially. Uh, the good thing is he's excellent what he does. The MCU has shown that he's amazing with long-term storytelling of this is where we start. This is ultimately our end game, literally and figuratively, um, and here are the steps we're going to take little by little to get us to that end game. And I think that can work wonders in having one um, distinct person at the top that knows and loves the source material is great. Um, I think the MCU has done a great job, and I think the rest of Marvel kind of needs to catch up with that. I think this is the biggest benefit to Marvel Comics proper and probably the TV division because the TV division has been fractured upon so many different platforms. Uh, you've got Cloak and Dagger on uh, Hulu or Freeform. I forget what that's on. You've had your Netflix heroes. Now it seems like they're all going to be under one banner, under one distinct voice and probably connected to the MCU, which is a good thing. Um, the only one of the downsides that I could potentially see in the future with this is Kevin Feige is now going to be a really, really busy guy. So does that mean the quality stays up with um, the MCU and everything in it? Or does the quality tend to dip a little bit? I think the quality will still be great. Kevin Feige is a great um, storyteller. He knows the right people to get in a situation. And I think he may take a back seat in just a little bit in the MCU. So he can do his other duties with like the comics or animated stuff or whatever else, but maybe he has a good brain trust over at the MCU, like maybe the Russos or uh, Taika Waititi. Maybe he set the right people there that he can kind of take a break from what's going on to be able to look out 
for everything else in the Marvel verse and not just the movies. I think this is great. Uh, the other question I have is he was just announced like a week or two ago that he's going to be producing a Star Wars movie. Is he still going to be doing that now? Because um, now he's even busier than ever. So is he still going to be doing the Star Wars movie? This also seems to eliminate the possibility that I thought might be a chance that he switches over to Lucasfilm once he's done with Marvel. Well, it doesn't seem like he's going to be done with Marvel anytime soon. Um, so I don't think he's going to be going over to Lucasfilm. I'll be very curious if he still ends up producing that Star Wars movie. I think the long-term plan that Disney has for Kevin Feige is I would not be surprised if... Um, so Alan Horn is the guy that currently oversees um, Disney's film division. And he more or less came out of retirement for Bob Iger, who's the dude of over all of Disney. Uh, and I'm not a fan of Bob Iger, but that's a thing for another day. I think they're grooming Kevin Feige to take Alan Horn's position when Alan Horn um, eventually goes back to retirement. Because Alan Horn is not a young dude. Alan Horn's been around forever. Um, I think they're grooming Kevin Feige to be the next Alan Horn in charge of all of Disney's films. And so they're like slowly working him up the ranks. And I think that's good because Kevin Feige has proven that he's one of the smartest guys in the business right now. And it seems as though Kevin Feige may have another new weapon in his arsenal if the internet tinfoil hat theories are true. So Ryan Reynolds, Deadpool himself, um, took to the very social media platforms and posted a picture of himself in front of uh, a sign over at the Marvel Studios offices implying that he had just got out of a meeting or was going into a meeting with the bigwigs over at Marvel Studios probably discussing the future of Deadpool. Um, so it goes without saying that Deadpool is a very um, unique character of a foul-mouthed, very violent, hard R-rated superhero that still exists in the comic, at least in the comic panels of other characters like Spider-Man and Iron Man, but hasn't crossed over with them in the films just because the MCU is PG-13 and proud. They don't have um, violence. They don't have sex. They don't have excessive swearing. Um, but Cap will still get on you if you swear too much. Um, so how is Deadpool going to fit into the MCU? Uh, for a lot of people, they don't think he will be. They think Deadpool will still be off. Will be an outlier of like... He'll still be distributed by Fox, but will kind of have its own pocket universe. I've always thought, and I'll speak for Josh here because I know he and I have thought this before, Deadpool can work as PG-13 if they wanted to put him in the MCU. Um, I think up until this point, Deadpool has been allowed to swear and be violent, whatever else. I think it actually would be funnier if Deadpool tries to swear in the MCU and he gets censored and he calls attention to the censoring and says something along the lines of like, Oh, yeah, I'm owned by the mouse now. I can't do that. Well, bleep that, and then they leave, literally bleep it. Um, or, like, he's about to cut a whole bunch of fools down, and he, like, grabs the camera and slowly turns it away and then puts the camera back after he kills a whole bunch of people and be like, okay, that's fine for a PG-13 movie. We can get away with anything with the MPAA. Isn't that right? Um, just some fun stuff like that. I think with this meeting being held, I think there's a very good chance of Deadpool joining the MCU and not being some pocket thing. Um, so long as we keep getting more Deadpool things, especially with Ryan Reynolds, because he's such a 
he was made for that role. And I'm glad he was able to get some redemption after the just atrociousness that was X-Men Origins Wolverine. Um, so it seems like he may be joining the MCU sooner rather than later. Now the question would be, how do we introduce him? Um, I don't think you'd introduce him through Spider-Man. I still think that may be how we introduce the Fantastic Four. Um, but it's it just makes my tinfoil hat crinkle just a little bit more going, hmm, what what's the theory this week? How How is he joining? But that's all it is for now. A theory is how is Deadpool? How and when is Deadpool joining the MCU? Switching now from Marvel over to the world of DC, we have Matt Reeves' Batman movie, the next uh, Batman franchise, whether it's a reboot, uh, whatever, we don't, we still don't know. We've been getting some casting news. We have Robert Pattinson as Batman. We've got uh, Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon. We had Jonah Hill as a villain, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. Now it seems like we now have our Catwoman as well as Zoe Kravitz, yes, the daughter of Lenny Kravitz, has been cast as Selena Kyle slash Catwoman. Um, sure. Um, I honestly, in all honesty, I have not seen Zoe Kravitz in that much stuff. I've seen her IMDb page. I'm just like, okay, so you have been steadily acting for quite a while. Um, but I just have not seen her in anything. So I don't know if this is a good casting or bad casting. I've heard some decent things about her as an actress. So I'm going to go with that and say, sure, cool. Um, I trust Matt Reeves' casting process. I think she'll be good. I just... I have not seen her in much, so I don't know if this is a good thing or bad thing, but the optimist that I am, I'm choosing to believe that this is a good thing. Uh, she seems to be a perfect age range for our pats. Wow, I just said that. Uh, for Battinson, I'll go with Battinson instead. I'll stick with that. Uh, she seems to be a good age range for um, Battinson's Batman. So, we'll see. Um, I'm hoping for more casting announcements soon. Hopefully a Dick Grayson or a Barbara Gordon or something along those lines. But that could just be me wishful thinking. Uh, But going back to the whole Jonah Hill thing. So, it was rumored that he was going to be either Penguin or Riddler. um, But apparently he hadn't signed on the dotted line yet because he was still negotiating his contract and his pay. Now, um, there were some reports coming out that he wanted more money than Robert Pattinson. Um... I just kind of figured that would be resolved and he would be eventually officially cast. Well, that seems to not have happened as he's now exited the project. I, my guess is he was asking too much money. Um, the rumor was that he was asking for $10 million for the movie, which is a little ridiculous considering there was also rumors that he was going to be a side villain and not the main antagonist. Um, that That's ridiculous to me. Um, it, it's not unprecedented. For an act, for a side actor in a Batman movie to make more than the actor playing Batman himself, Jack Nicholson made so much more money than Michael Keaton in the original Batman. Um, but that being said, uh, I don't think this is a huge loss. Jonah Hill is a great actor. That being said, you can't be picky with something like this. Of comic book movies are a really big thing right now, and. Almost any actor nowadays would be like, oh, yeah, sure, I would love to be in a comic book movie because they know it's bank. Whereas Jonah Hill, uh, I don't know, because he's been nominated twice for an Academy Award, maybe he feels that he has better options or he just doesn't care about the pay. But, well, clearly he does care about the pay. Um, 
I don't know what the issue is. I think there's a lot of other actors that would leap at the opportunity to be in a comic book movie, so I don't get why he's turning it down, especially working with Matt Reeves, who is a really well-known and respected director in the business. I I don't know what would get him to leave, but it's it's fascinating to me nonetheless. Um, but we'll, we'll see who they get to replace him. There's talk that the studio wanted Seth Rogen, which I hope that's not true because... No offense to Seth Rogen, but there's a wide acting difference between Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill. But also, just no, Seth Rogen does not scream Batman to me at all. Um, but quick, going back to Zoe Kravitz really quick, because my train of thought's all over the place today. Uh, she's actually played Catwoman before. She actually voiced Selina Kyle slash Catwoman in the Lego Batman movie. Fun fact there. Um, but I'll be curious to see if the role that was intended for Jonah Hill changes up now that he's no longer attached to the project whether it was penguin or riddler or if we'll get the full story in the coming days i'm i'm just curious in general next up we've got a batch of new trailers uh three new trailers in fact first up is disney's seemingly long gestating jungle cruise movie i feel like this movie has been in production forever and is only just now getting a trailer Uh, maybe it's just because emily blunt and the rock are like super busy and some of the most busy actors in hollywood um but they finally got finished with filming and now we have a trailer and i'll be honest it's just the mummy that being said I like The Mummy. When I say The Mummy, I mean the Brendan Fraser one and not the god-awful Tom Cruise one. Don't don't ever see that movie, people. I cannot stress that enough. This movie, just by the trailer, it feels exactly like the Brendan Fraser Mummy. Just the side-by-side comparison of a British female attractive um, museum curator and her dim-witted brother get a clue to a long-lost treasure, and they hire a good-looking rascally scoundrel to help them find their treasure. Hmm, doesn't that sound like the mummy? That's exactly what we're getting with Jungle Cruise. Um, But darn it if this movie from the trailer at least wasn't charming. There was some fun personality in this trailer of, I often chastise The Rock because he's the same in every movie. But... If nothing else, he's always got a lot of charisma in movies, and he seems to have a ton in this movie. Um, Emily Blunt is one of the best actresses working today. Um, I think she's going to be great in this role. One of the things that I really appreciate about this trailer, though, is um, living near the theme parks, I go to Disney all the time, and Jungle Cruise is just a classic. Yes, it's a little outdated now, but... um, I embrace, I love the fact that they're kind of embracing the ride of the, nothing about the trailer really made me pop or cheer, like the action set pieces or anything, but the thing that did, I literally cheered out loud was when, uh, he's, when Dwayne Johnson's character is guiding him through the river journey and all that's clearly fake, like he hits a switch and the, um, plastic hippo comes out of the water, it's like, okay, so they're acknowledging that the ride is supposed to be cheesy and dumb or like he signals to the natives he's just like come on man that's overkill but the part that i actually cheered out loud and celebrated yes you did the thing 
was the eighth wonder of the world, the backside of water. Because that's like one of the really cheesy, dumb jokes from the Jungle Cruise ride that my mom always applauds at because you kind of have to pity the skippers on those rides because they have to tell the same corny jokes all day, which means, you know, I want that job. Um, they, They really leaned into those corny, cheesy jokes that make the ride what it is, and I really appreciated that. Uh, it it's the mummy, but if you're going off the Brendan Fraser mummy, that's never something bad to try and emulate. I still think the, uh, Aquaman feels a lot like the mummy, and I love Aquaman. So I'm kind of hoping that Jungle Cruise works. It seems to be a combination of the mummy mixed with Jumanji, which was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed Jumanji. So here's hoping Jungle Cruise really, really works, and that when and if this movie's success, my bad, um, it doesn't bleed over too much into the theme parks because that's the last thing that I want is more IP stuff in the parks. Please, Bob Chapek, just just slow down with your IPs. Um, next up, we have another Disney trailer, this time for Onward. Now, I have been pretty critical of the marketing for the movie for this movie so far in that I haven't thought um, a lot of the trailers have been particularly solid. I thought that the animation style looked a little too much like um, Trolls, and it didn't. It just looked like stuff that we'd seen before. It felt like a Disney cartoon version of the Netflix film Bright, where it's just like, here's the modern world, except if fantasy creatures lived here. Um, trailers just haven't done it for me. Up until now, I really, really enjoy this trailer. So this trailer kind of gives us a better look at um, what we can expect story-wise for this movie. So it's basically Tom Holland and Chris Pratt are two brothers who get a special gift from their long-deceased father um, on Tom Holland's 16th birthday. They get this magic staff that um, they can bring their father back for 24 hours. Um, so they try and conjure the spell, but it doesn't quite go right, so they summon their father's lower half. That's it, uh, basically from the, and they have to complete the magic spell to get the top half of their father, uh, for a couple hours, um, just to be able to see him, and it seems like it's gonna be a lot of fun, like a lot of charm. Chris Pratt and Tom Holland are just great together, um, I can just tell that they're going to have great chemistry, but I'm intrigued by the story. The humor seems to really, really work. A lot of the jokes in this new trailer clicked for me. This this was the trailer that they probably should have opened with. The more recent, the opening trailers just were not very good. This one, however, I actually really, really liked, and now I'm kind of curious to see this movie. It's not like it's my most anticipated um, Disney movie of recent memory, but this trailer is certainly better than what we were getting before, and it is certainly better than our next trailer. And lastly, for trailers, we have Dr. Doolittle, or The Fantastic Journey of Dr. Doolittle, if you want to go with the full name. This time, not played by Eddie Murphy, but played by post-Avengers Endgame, Robert Downey Jr. And, oh boy, um... How do I say this? This movie is doomed on arrival. So this movie was has been pushed back twice. It was supposed to come out April of last year, I think. And then it got pushed to December. And now it's mid-January, which if you don't know, 
January is more or less movie dead season. If your movie has been scheduled to come out in January, that means the studio has very little to no faith that this movie is actually going to make any money. Um, and I'll be honest, this trailer looks awful. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. has barely any dialogue, and when he does, it sounds like he's just trying to get his Sherlock voice back for when they come back for Sherlock Holmes 3. His character looks and acts like Sherlock Holmes, he even does the Sherlock Holmes hat flip that he did in the very first Sherlock. So while I'm watching this trailer, I'm just like, oh yeah, he's got a Sherlock movie does, coming out, doesn't it? This just seems like he's doing a warm-up for that. His Robert Downey Jr.'s um, acting choices since joining the MCU are very odd. This is only his second non-MCU movie since 2008, with the other one being 2011's The Judge with Robert Duvall, which didn't really light up the box office and was just kind of okay. Um... This movie does not look that great. That being said, it's like loaded with um, big names. You got Robert Darren Jr., John Cena, Tom Holland, Octavia Spencer, uh, Kumail Nanjiani from Stuber, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, there's Ray Fiennes. There's a bunch of famous names in this. It just does not look very good. Uh, although, I do appreciate that uh, when I saw this posted, I was going through different comments on Twitter, and someone's like, Dr. Doolittle's black, what are they doing? And I'm just like, y'all know that Doolittle is based off a movie, which is based off of a really old book, um, but you're going to be missing Robert uh, Eddie Murphy really, really soon, I can guarantee you, but also let's not forget that the Doolittle franchise has been through far worse with the terrible direct-to-DVD sequels. Did you know there's four in that uh, Eddie Murphy timeline. There's four Doolittle movies, and they're all terrible, except for the first one. Um, I have little to no faith in this movie. It is not a good sign when your movie comes out in January, and you're only just now dropping a trailer for it. I just, that's not a good thing at all. I'm very nervous for this movie. Robert Downey Jr., what are you doing? Just the, if you've seen what he looks like on the poster, he just looks like he's given up already, and it's, it's pretty sad. Robert Downey Jr. is a great actor, I think he's above this. Who knows? It could be a great movie. I don't think it will be. This trailer just seems just dreadful. Now, last up, we have some casting news for the next Matrix. Uh, for now, it's just called The Matrix 4. Um, now, if I remember this actor's name correctly, and if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's Yaha Abdul-Mateen. I'm Sorry if I'm butchering that name. He is the actor that played uh, Black Manta in the Aquaman movie. And he was also Zendaya's brother in Greatest Showman. He's been steadily on the rise. Um, he seems he was cast in this new Matrix movie with Keanu Reeves returning and Carrie Ma Moss returning. There's some talk that he might be a young Morpheus, originally played by Lawrence Fishburne. I, I don't think so. Um, but you never know with the Wachowskis. Now, uh, this role also was apparently under consideration with Michael B. Jordan, so there is a chance that it could be a young Morpheus. I don't think that's the case. Um, I like this actor. I'm looking forward to seeing him in more and more stuff. Like I said, he's an on-the-rise name that I hope to see more of in the future with more stuff. So, sure, I'm all for it. And the other casting that seems a bit more out of left field, especially for the Matrix franchise, is... Neil Patrick Harris. Apparently, he's been added to the Matrix 4, and I'm not sure what to make of this. 
Um, he is a multifaceted talent, but when I think The Matrix, I don't think Neil Patrick Harris. That being said, when I think Nightwing, if you told me that a couple years ago, I wouldn't have thought Neil Patrick Harris. And yes, Nightwing comes back in all situations. Um, but still to this day, Neil Patrick Harris is my favorite voice actor for Nightwing ever. Um, Neil Patrick Harris can do some good dramatic stuff, too. He was really, really good in um, Gone Girl. So maybe he's going for more of that dramatic. I don't really know what to expect. Um, I'm not a huge Matrix person, but if they, if it's a compelling story, I'll be interested. At the end of the day, that's what gets me interested, is good characters and good story. I think the Wachowskis are just trying to capitalize on the Keanuessance that we're in the middle of, and I think that's all it is, more or less, and just seeing, oh yeah, Matrix is popular, I'm sure we can bring that back. I'm not super excited for this franchise, but... I can see why people are, so I think this casting is interesting. I don't really know what to make of it, but yeah, it's it's odd to say the least. Um, so yeah, um, that's it for movie news. I think for our sponsor this week, I'll go with Halloween candy. Have you gotten yours, and have you gone through your first bag or two already? Because you know you probably have. So, make sure you get another bag or two before Halloween comes out, and don't eat it all in one sitting. Uh, so, that'll segue us perfectly into our main discussion. And, segueing us now to our main movie discussion this week, uh, favorite horror movie heroes. I've always thought that the best horror movies are only as good as the heroes that oppose the monsters or the evil forces that they have to go up against. And so, as I mentioned earlier with Josh... Seemingly out of the picture due to an, uh, a medical emergency. We'll go with that. We don't quite know all the details, but we hope Josh is okay. Thankfully, I was able to find a great fill-in at the last minute who's going to be helping me out with this main discussion. How are you doing tonight, Heather? I'm pretty good. How are you? Um, I'm not too bad, Josh. We hope you're doing just fine, but I'm glad Heather's here to be able to step in. And thankfully, it is a topic that uh, a lot of the names on this list... Heather has been able to watch the movies with me, so um, almost all these, except for maybe two or three, I feel like, Heather, you're going to be able to contribute pretty well to this conversation. Yeah, I was just looking them over before we started, and I do remember a lot of them pretty well. Yeah, so um, I feel like it's pretty safe to say that with you and I, at least from my perspective, I don't know about how you feel about it, um, but I think... At least for me, my favorite horror franchise is Halloween. Is that mm-hmm. one? Is, would you say that's your favorite to watch together, or how? Where's Halloween on your horror favorites? I would definitely say it's one of my favorites, um, probably because it's the first one you introduced to me, and because I was unsure of it before. Before you know, you showed me the movies. I was just thought, oh, you know, it's Michael Myers. But just like the whole psychology behind it and everything and just how it's a different, it makes you think, but it's not bloody. That's why I like it. Yeah, at least with that original. Um, mm-hmm. And even then, even at their bloodiest, I don't think Halloween is, I think the either the Rob Zombie ones or the 2018 Halloween is probably the bloodiest. But even then, they're not like bloody by slasher standards. Right. Um, and I think a part of the reason why it really resonated with me, but I'm sure it also resonated with you is yes, the franchise is known for Michael Myers, but, um, 
even at the worst of times, Halloween has had really good main heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to start off strong. If we're talking about our favorite horror movie heroes, I have to talk about by far my favorite just across the board. And that is the original 1978 Halloween's Laurie Strode. Um, where does Laurie rank on your overall list of horror movie just heroes and characters, Heather, where does Laurie rank in your favorite mm-hmm. heroes? I would definitely say pretty high. Like, I haven't really thought about, you know, who's first or second or whatever, but I'd say definitely pretty high. Why is that? Um, she's just very, she's very independent and strong. Um, she doesn't just go in and be the popular kid in high school. Um, she's going to do what's best for her and what's best for her family and friends. Yeah, I like that. She's one of the only, she more or less, Jamie Lee Curtis's character in the original Halloween pioneered a lot of the tropes of the final girl of like this smart nerdy one is the one left standing. But I think Jamie Lee Curtis's character brought a lot of charm uh, to the character just because mm-hmm. upon rewatches, I'm, I like the character more and more because she's one of the most responsible characters I've ever seen of the danger is not that she's being stalked by Michael Myers. The danger is that she's babysitting two kids. Mm-hmm. And I like that her character is constantly um, thinking about the kids first. I know a common criticism that people have is like, well, why does she run upstairs after she stabs Michael in the neck? It's because she's taking care of Tommy and Lindsay. Or the kids are always, always her first priority in the first movie, and I really appreciate that. Um, uh Having babysit numerous times, Heather, is that something that res- really resonated with you? Oh, oh, definitely. Like, yeah, I remember when you first showed me, like, I thought that was the first thing. Like, the kids, Tommy and Lindsay, are probably, like, five or six years old. And what, Lori's not that old. She's, like, maybe 16 or 17. And, yeah, I've watched a couple, I've watched several kids over the years. And especially when I was younger or in high school, I felt like, okay, now, you know, every little noise you hear at nighttime or anything, you just don't know. Like, you just don't know what would happen. So I can't imagine just how she felt like when she was home alone with them. And, you know, she had a phone call away from her friend, but all that stuff. Like, the friend wasn't exactly the most helpful, but she was able to handle it all on her own, like like Nathan said. Yeah, and I like that. So, um... Laurie Strode is in multiple Halloween movies. She's in the first one, the second one, uh, H2O. Except for Resurrection, it's pretty safe to say with the Halloween franchise, if Laurie Strode is in it, it's a good movie. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we love the first one. The second one is probably your favorite of the sequels. If not, it's Mm -hmm. H2O, which is another one with her in it. And uh, what you and I have talked about many times that we really like is Laurie's great in the first one, but she's one of the only horror heroes that we've ever seen that has a definitive, like, arc and changes as a character of the shy, kind of timid girl to uh, one of my favorite moments, and I'm sure it's the same with you, is in H2O when once she finds out her kids are safe, she locks the door to the campus so no, so Michael can't escape and she finally confronts him one-on-one mm-hmm. and that great Halloween music kicks in and she's screaming for Michael because she's not running anymore. Yeah. Um, but before we keep raving on about how great Lori is, uh, one last note of, I think when I first watched the movie, the moment that I was just like, all right, I can get behind this character more than any other character that I've seen is... Uh, she's trying to hide from Michael Myers and she hides in this closet and he starts busting his way in because that's what bad guys do. 
And she initially is panicking and freaking out, as anyone would in that situation. And then once the situation starts settling in, if she realizes what's happening, she turn, turns her brain on and met, immediately grabs a coat hanger and starts mm-hmm. trying to fashion a weapon into it yeah. of immediately trying to use the brain of, all right, what can I do in this situation? How can mm-hmm. I get out of this? And that was a nice thing of, in the new one, uh, Michael's eye is still damaged. Yeah. That's why. I, I just wanted to butt in really fast. I want so maybe not everyone has seen Halloween. Like, this was back to the original Halloween with the hanger. Go ahead. Yeah. So I like that in the original, the 78 version, that was something that carried on in the 2018 version that they kept Michael having a janky eye because she stabbed it with a coat hanger. But um, throughout the movie, yes, she's the shy introverted girl, but she's always played par with Michael, whether it's stabbing him in the neck with the knitting needle, um, with the coat hanger, or even being more or less Sarah Connor from the Terminator in 2018's Mm, Halloween. mm, If she's mm -hmm. got full-on protective mama bear. Of everybody, her family, whoever. She she wanted to help the whole town. (laughs) Um, And so... When you and I saw Halloween in 2018, mm-hmm. um, we talked about it going into it that uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode had more or less taken on the role of the one of uh, the other great horror movie heroes in the Halloween franchise. She more or less filled in the shoes of Dr. Samuel Loomis, mm-hmm. who yes. is the only other character besides Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode that actually is in more Halloween movies. Now that I think about it, um, think about it off the fly. Um, Laurie Strode is in one... Two, H2O, Resurrection, and 2018s. So she's in five mm-hmm. movies. Donald Pleasance's Dr. Loomis is in one, two, four, five, and then six. So they okay. have the same so amount of five. movies. Five. Okay, I thought it was four. Um, he unfortunately passed away during filming of six. But uh, Dr. Loomis is more or less the psychi- psychiatric? Psychiatrist. Yeah, there, that's psychiatrist because that's the one with the medical. Yes. Like, not psychologist. Thing. Yes. Yeah. Psychiatrist for Michael Myers. He's been watching him for 15 years. I tried to reach him for seven, and then the last eight, I ensured that he was stayed locked up. Um, he's a good character because he's so constant with the franchise. And Don, uh, the actor that played him, Donald Pleasance, had been in a bunch of stuff beforehand. Um, I know you haven't seen it yet. Either, but he's known for being a really famous James Bond villain, mm-hmm. uh, Ernst Blofeld. No, and I was, could see that. I could see that. Um, that's like what he's most known for, but I'll always know as Dr. Loomis. So this is your second character. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right off the bat, we're going to have three Halloween characters because Halloween is just the best. Uh, but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis' Laurie Strode kind of dipped in and out of the franchises mm-hmm. of like, she was there for the first two. Great. She was there for uh, the reboot with H2O, more or less. And now she's here again. Whereas Donald Pleasance's uh, Dr. Loomis was like a constant. And it was kind of nice to have that one presence of even the actors that played Michael Myers may have changed. But Dr. Loomis was constant. And his character was constant. It wasn't like a Laurie situation where she's got this good character arc of Dr. Loomis... Um, for lack of a better term, he's kind of like a modern Van Helsing. Of <clears throat> Van Helsing was a character that hunted down Dracula. Doctor Loomis, on the flip side, is the character that's always on the hunt for Michael, and he knows him better than anyone else because he's been searching for him fif- for he's been with him for fifteen mm-hmm. years. He's been researching his habits and whatever, and right, he like sits down with him and whatever. Yeah, he tried, and then um, they kind of expounded upon that a little bit more in. Um, the Rob Zombie one okay. in the 2007 one that was just kind of yeah. okay. But 
Um, I like but that he knows him. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Just Loomis was a good steady character that we got a lot of personality from. Um, but he's also has different facets to him. Normally he's like the hard and grizzled, we have to stop Michael. But there's these like little moments of compassion and humor that I really enjoy that Donald Pleasance has of like uh, the character Lonnie, who is a mischievous little brat. Um, he's hanging out with his friends and he goes up to the Myers house and Loomis is like, Lonnie. Get your butt away from there and scares the crap out of Lonnie and Lonnie runs screaming. And then Loomis kind of has this like little smirk of like he's proud of himself. Um, but he'll always like he's like more or less the last line of defense of he's for some reason the only dude except for maybe Halloween four that ever comes prepared with a gun in Halloween. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going off the first one, Heather, how many times did Dr. Loomis shoot Michael? Six. Six. Yep. Six times. <laughs> I shot him six times, which is, yeah, that's the most, that's the, his iconic line. But yeah. I could talk about Loomis all day. Heather, you got anything else about Loomis before we move on? Um, yeah, the only other thing I was going to say is you were saying how he was the only one that we saw that we knew of that had the gun. But honestly, if you think about it, I think maybe he was the only one since he knew who he was. He'd known him for so long, know of him at least. He's probably the only one that thinks that he could handle having the gun, besides Lori. Yeah, that's true. Because uh, in all honesty, oh, I just, it just now dawns on me. Lori Strode doesn't handle... No, wait, no, nope. I was about to say she doesn't handle a gun until 2018s, but no, she shoots out Michael's eyes in two because the blood streaks yeah, come down with the mask. Yeah, but it wasn't like she really... It's not like, oh, every time I'm going to get a gun, I'm going to get a gun. Yeah, Loomis is the it's only like, one that's like prepared. Because even yeah. the... Law enforcement in Haddonfield doesn't really believe that Michael's real because... No, they've just heard all this rumor, rumor, rumor over the years. Yeah, it's a quiet town. Yeah. Um, but we have one more name in the Halloween franchise. Um, so once Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Laurie Strode, didn't really come back after the second one, they wanted to keep the franchise going... Uh, but they couldn't do it with her. So they decided to introduce a new character called Jamie Lloyd, who would be revealed to be um, Laurie Strode's uh, daughter? Yes. Daughter. It's super confusing at times. Um, played by Danielle Harris. And for a child actor, she's really amazing in Halloween 4 and 5. Uh, at times, child actors can be pretty hit or miss. But given how much um, heavy-duty acting she has to do, I think she does a really good job. Um, what memories do you remember when you first saw Halloween 4 and 5, Heather, with um, Jamie? What was your first impression of her? Oh, I'm trying to remember. I'm, I get I blend them a little bit together. I just know that I we both like 4 better than 5. Which is weird because I'll say... Um, Jamie's performance is better in five than it is in four. Yeah. Primarily just because she has more to do because honorable mention to Rachel, who should not have been killed off how she was in five. Um, mm -hmm. Another great horror movie hero. Uh, I would say like in four. Okay. So four is when she, she meets the, um, it's when she goes to that school, but she's not mute. Is that correct? Yeah, she can still talk in four. Okay. Five is where she's mute for no apparent okay, reason. I'm trying to remember. Okay, four. Four is just Michael's back, and most of the showdown is in the house. 
the right. old Myers house. Right. I just know Rachel protected her, and I think um, Jamie did a really good job of, like, you know, staying quiet and things like that. Even You know, she's, like, six or seven years old at the time. I think she, she knew that Michael was scary and bad because I feel like she had, like, bad dreams. Was that in the fourth one, even though in, in the fifth one, too? I know she, like, had terrors in the fifth one, but I feel like, is that when she drew... I'm getting confused. I I think she, she drew in the fifth one, but I think you're right. I think, I think she, she did have. Drew. I think she had some dreams in the fourth one that didn't really get explained till mm. the fifth one. Because I know, didn't she have a picture her of her mom, and she was sitting in the bedroom? Yes. And she like, and then Michael appears was like a from teddy under bear the bed. Or something that like shook and then like, yeah, she got scared. Yeah, and Michael's terrible mask but. is showing. Even after all that, like, she was brave. Like you said, later in the movie, like, it was in the house, and Rachel was, like, protecting and protecting, just like Laura would. But, like, Jamie was, she wasn't going to let this scary being, like, you know, ruin her her whole day or her whole life or whatever. Like, she's still going to be okay. Yeah, and that, that's the thing with these new Halloween movies is if there's anybody I feel bad for, it's Danielle Harris, um, who played Jamie just because she's been so vocal about wanting to come back, but it just logically doesn't make sense for her to come back because in this new timeline, she doesn't exist anymore. Um, but she's a great character. Just across the board, Halloween had really, really good um, mm-hmm. supporting characters. Like, Michael's always the main character, but unlike some other slasher genres, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street... Uh, you care about the main protagonist, too, and you actually want most of the people to survive. Yeah. Granted, there's characters in Halloween that you're, you're totally fine when they bite it. But by and large, there's characters that you're like, okay, mm-hmm. I root for you more than others. Yeah, I think it's, uh, as a side note before we go on the next one, but I think in Halloween characters in general, they did a really good job of having a variety of, of real people. You know, some people that are just stupid, some people that are willing to help out and be heroes and then some people are they're just there but they're not like you know not um i don't know how to say it just they're they're in the story to fulfill the story not necessarily um are they doing anything wrong or doing anything you know superior but they are there and that helps lead the story on yeah i completely agree now we promise we're done talking about Halloween, at least for this week. I'm sure we'll come back to it later. Um, next up is uh, the main character in a criminally underrated Stephen King adaptation. Uh, a lot of people talk about, like, The Shining mm. or Dr. Sleep, which we're both super excited to see about that in a couple weeks. Um, we've talked about it numerous times on the podcast, but 1408 and Mike Enslin, the main character, uh, I love this movie and i think it's mm-hmm. a big part of that is john cusack's performance as mike enslin uh, mm-hmm. off the top of your head what do you remember about 1408 mm-hmm. and what do you remember about mike enslin heather well in 1408 uh, mike the character mike he is on the search for like these is it like a ghost ghost uh, stories ghost he's like more like, like haunted he's attractions. like a ghost chaser kind of kind of yeah. like he's a ghost writer for like this is the most attraction, mm-hmm. most haunted attraction in this state. Yeah. Yada yada yada. And he writes novels, so he's a he's an author and he's trying to gather information. So he's going to all these different hotels, and he ends up at a hotel, and it's like, um, he don't want, stay in fourteen oh eight. Don't stay in fourteen oh eight. Um, that's what the 
the, you know, the manager of the hotel says he played insists, by Samuel L. Jackson insists, insists, but no, um, John Cusack, Mike is basically like, no, I'm going to, and you, you're going to let me no matter what. And I think that's his persistence, no matter what he has persistence, but to go along with that, um, you know, we keep talking. Oh no, go for it. Okay. To go along with that, like, okay, he's doing his thing. He's in, the, he finally gets, gets to be in this hotel room. But every little thing is starting to get weird. Everything is, like, off. Like, um, I know he, like, turns on lights and different things go wrong. He's, like, in the bathroom and, like, I feel like the water sprays out of the sink or the shower. What? I think blood starts coming out of the something, sink, I think. Something, like, very, very abnormal. And, like, all these different things are going on. But... To do with that, like, even though he's, like, kind of weirded out by all of it, he remains calm. He's, like, he's basically He's a skeptic. Yeah, he's a skeptic. He's skeptic, but he remains calm, and he's trapped in this hotel room. And the thing most, it's, like, oh, if you haven't seen this movie, like, it's... Spoiler alert. It's, like, 10 years old now. But I really... The one thing I'm going to say, and then you could add or whatever sorry i'm like taking it oh no go for it but um basically i really liked it because i know nathan liked it too is because it's a long story kind of explained nathan can explain it better maybe but i liked how it all revolves around like it's like an analogy or like an allegory or i don't know the right term it's a metaphor for dante's metaphor of something he just said dante's inferno with the different levels of hell yes and it has to do with his family and then um nathan you can go from there so at, at, when you first meet him, it's just like, oh, he just is one of those cheap horror authors that likes to just prey on people that are easily gullible to be like, oh, this place is haunted. I got to go check it out. Uh, and at times that's what his character is. But on the flip side, when you really get to know more about his character, the reason why he goes to all these haunted places and these haunted attractions is he's whether he wants to admit it or not, he's desperately seeking proof and validation that there's life after death because um his child was taken from him i think it may have been cancer i'm thinking it was cancer or some really like it was something that like they could prepare disease. yeah yeah it was something like they could mentally prepare themselves for um and they couldn't do anything to stop it wasn't like a hit and run or anything um but his child dies of cancer and he's kind of looking for this validation that they're in an okay place which makes the story kind of have this extra layer and gives him an extra layer of depth of just like he's not just this grumpy old guy just stuck in a really mm. bad situation if he's got this emotional complexity to him and the room preys on that of uh he's forced to relive things from his past mm. and just kind of acknowledge that um stuff that happened in your past it's not his fault um there's nothing he could have done to save his mm. daughter right and he has to accept that mm-hmm like 1408 when describing it to people it's hard to describe because it's not your typical horror movie it's not like a jump scare just a whole Mm -hmm. high body count type movie it's a it is an allegory for dante's inferno of the different depths of pain and suffering that a person has to go through in order to be reborn and come out the other side and he his journey is very interesting of he he comes mm-hmm. a long way in the story, and um, we, we've we seen all kinds of different John Cusack movies. One of our favorites is Better Off Dead. He's not the same Better Off Dead character in no, this movie. It's, it's different. <laughs> it's 
I've never really seen him in a performance like this, and it's a movie that doesn't really get the attention that it deserves, I think. Um, but it's it's a great movie, and Mike Enslin as a character just really anchors it into a believable aspect, which, um, Heather, you got another one? Um, yeah, I just really quick, I wanted to add on to this one. But I think it, it makes him not saying... Um, movies with just main with mainly one actor like automatically they're going to be the best one in the film but it made it seem like he was the main focus his story was the main focus he was the main guy in it but like what we said before i'm just kind of repeating but he had to do so much to explain you know his his past his whatever his current situation with his his wife or separated wife because of what happened to his daughter um i just feel like that he was supposed to be that character like he was designed to be that character yeah it if you have not seen 14 away just just see it um so there's a name that i've this is a pretty long list but there's some names that i'm just now forgetting that i completely threw off that I completely forgot about. And so we need to talk about them now while I have Heather here because Heather and I could talk about these people all day long. And that's not just one character, but four characters. The Abbots from A Quiet Place. Which some people make their argument that it's not a horror movie. It is. Um, I can't narrow down a single one of the Abbots from A Quiet Place. And I go with all four. Um, Heather... I know it, but walk through the people that don't know mm-hmm. our experience with A Quiet Place and your overall thoughts of the movie and the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, what's his name? John John Krasinski. Yeah. So, him and his wife and their kids, they, um, they have to, they have to leave, what? They're they're living like a strain from everybody. They're living far, far away. Yeah, and because something of it's happened. like something happened. It's like in the future or something, um, where they have to be completely quiet. So they like go into town and get some things at the store, but every little movement in the store, every movement on the way back home, they have to be silent. So they're they're usually barefoot. Um, as much as I remember, they were barefoot. But the most unique thing about this movie, just to kind of be- explain it before we go into the characters, is that they're literally, there's not much narration, like verbal narration. There's body language, there's sign language, and um, it's just, that's how they have to communicate. For one thing, like, the daughter, the oldest, the teenage daughter, she's deaf. Played by a deaf actress, Yeah, played by a deaf actress, which works out really, really well, and we'll go into that. But, yeah, so, like, they have to do things because what... It's like a... What do you call it when it's, like, the time period or, like, the... What has happened? It's, like, it's very serious where... um, You know what I'm trying to say? No. Like, like not... um, not like the rapture or anything, but like um, everyone's. It's post-apocalyptic. Yeah, everyone's that, that's gone. It. I couldn't think of it. But everyone's gone. Yeah. So I mean, there's there are not people, and if there are people, they're like they're scattered. Like everyone's just away from anything 
like civilization that what is left and so like i said they're like going back to their house they have to survive on very little they have uh, my favorite one of my favorite scenes is it was in the trailer is when they're playing like sorry they're playing a board game but all the board game pieces are not the real um plastic pieces they have to use like little cotton balls they have to use like random things that are soft and that are quiet because again they can't make noises um, and then also in that scene, like someone spills like a lantern mm-hmm. and it like, you know, like it's make loud. a, it's a really bad crash. And so then they're like, hurry and scurry and to get blankets, get towels, get anything to cover up the fire that went on the, the, um, their floor and just things like that, like make it a really good movie. And there's a lot, lot, a lot we could say about it. We could have a whole yes, time uh, about that. But anyway, the characters. Yeah. So, uh, for me, part of the reason why the movie stands out so much is because the character's working so well. Um, I've tried to explain it to people before. Of It's not your stereotypical horror movie. It is, at its core, and I think it's part of the reason why Heather likes it so much, it is a family-centered drama. Mm-hmm. The horror takes a back seat to what's going on with the family. Um, I, I love the fact that... So, in this world, you have to be quiet, and you more or less have to communicate by sign language. Um, the family... Something happens, something... A tragedy happens to the family pretty early on in the movie, and it kind of creates this rift and divide between certain members mm, of the family. Yeah. And so they can't properly communicate their feelings to another one another. And that's properly, perfectly illustrated by the fact that they literally can't talk to each mm-hmm. other about their problems, they, or else the monsters will hear them. So there's this lack of talking within the family, both literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. That, that's a good point, yeah. Um, but all the characters are great. And what I love about the characters is, even though they're in this post-apocalyptic world and survival's key, they kind of still live life like it's normal. Like Heather talked about, they still play board games. Uh, the mom is pregnant. Yeah, like they try, very pregnant. They're trying to <laughs> live their life normal. Um, and... Just all the characters are great. John Krasinski is one of the best movie fathers you will ever see. Mm, yeah. Emily Blunt um, is a great movie mother and one of the toughest. Say, mo- yeah. One of the toughest movie moms ever. There's a scene with a mm. nail that still to this day will make me scream. I won't watch it. Oh, yucky. It's just, but the fact that she only kind of lets out a mild cry of discomfort instead yeah. of full-on screaming makes yeah. her incredibly tough but even the kid actors we talked earlier about jamie lloyd being a really good performance for a young actress but uh both uh noah jupe who's gonna be in honey boy um and uh, the deaf actress i can't remember yeah. her name both of them are excellent um without giving away the ending john krasinski's final scene in the film is oh man it's one of the mm-hmm. best scenes I've seen, not just in a horror movie, but just in movies, period, of illustrating a father's love um, and being finally communicating what is needed. Mm-hmm. When he literally talks to his daughter, oh, oh gosh, I'm just now realizing that's literally the only time he physically talks to his daughter. Yeah, because he's understanding different things. No, because he talks to his mm. son at the waterfall. Right. Everything else he has to sign because his daughter's deaf. Right. The only time he literally verbalizes anything to his daughter is when he's mm. screaming out at the end. Yeah. Um, but he he keeps things from her. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he loves her, that's why he keeps yeah. things from her. It's just, 
in all honesty, A Quiet Place is one of the best representations of a family unit that I've ever mm-hmm. seen. And a family that cares about each other. And they're just great characters. I can not talk about A Quiet Place enough. It is so good. Mm-hmm. And I cannot wait for the next one to come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got anything else before we go on to the mm-hmm. next one? Because I feel like we can talk about A Quiet Place yeah. all day. I'll just very quickly. like Nathan definitely said this. But he is the probably a best representation of a leader. Like a, not only just a male figure. But he like... He, like Nathan said, a father figure in the house. And I think he was so protective of his oldest daughter that's deaf because she is the one that could understand the most. Because the younger boy, he could understand some things, but... He just wasn't there age-wise. Right. And then the older girl, oh, she was maybe 14 or 15, maybe. And who still kind of blames herself for the tragedy that happened earlier. Yes, she definitely did. That's why, yeah. Yeah. I think that's why um, he protected her so much. And because, like, she he knew that she could help the mom, she could help the brother. Like, that was her job. Her job was to help help them while the dad did, you know, his thing to protect the whole family. Yeah. Um, so, moving on. A lot of these next ones will be kind of brief, yeah. but, uh, like, those are our ones that we'll have real in-depth. But we still got plenty more names on our list. Um it's hard to not to talk about ultimate movie heroes without talking about Sydney Prescott from the Scream movies. Um, she's a lot like Dr. Loomis combined with Laurie Strode in that she's that final girl stereotype uh, who always has good common sense. But like Loomis in the fact that she was a constant, I can't really think of any other horror franchise that I've ever seen that it's the same mm-hmm. protagonist every single time and the killer yeah. is actually the one that changes every single time. And I think that kind of makes it easier to root for Sydney because you will have movie upon movie that you're rooting for her. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it was the second one that we complained that she wasn't in it nearly enough. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to remember, but... Yeah, it's been a while since we've seen mm-hmm. Scream. But I like the movies because it's one of the few that actually has like a logical character of yeah. just like, no, let's not do that because that's stupid. Mm-hmm. And has the same character. I, I like consistency. A lot of the names on this list are people that you'll see a couple times in their mm-hmm. respective franchises, um, even if they're played by different people. Case in point, Tommy Jarvis mm-hmm. in Friday the 13th, uh, parts four through six. So Friday the 13th is always kind of up in the air with their, mm, yeah. with their <laughs> both protagonists and their storytelling. But to me, the best ones are the middle ones. Uh, well, more... Specifically four and six. Five is not very good. That's the one where Tommy's like in a halfway house or whatever. Um, But four, you meet this young boy, played by Corey Feldman of all people, um, playing Tommy Jarvis, who just wants to have a nice uh, trip away with his mom and his big sister. And, of course, Jason's not going to let that happen. Uh, But Corey Feldman outsmarts him. And then you kind of go full... Laurie Strode mixed with Dr. Loomis with Tommy Jarvis in part six, which is my favorite of the Friday the 13th ones. Heather, do you remember six at all? That's the one with adult Tommy actually like going head to head with Jason. Very, very little, but I, I know that Tommy was a great character, but I don't remember that much right now. To be honest, I like but don't love Friday the 13th. I'm a yeah. bigger defender than some other people, but yes, they're all very, very similar movies, but six... Six is the better one because it feels 
like it knows what it is. Mm-hmm. It's just trying to be a fun slasher with some surprisingly good heroes. Yeah. Um, the only thing in this that I will say, and this is terrible, I only know of Friday the 13th anymore right now. It was because of the game you play. Your, um, is it called Friday the 13th? Yep. Like, I only remember the characters because I know you play them on this game. And so you know, about it. So you know Tommy Jarvis has to be one of the best movie heroes if he's actually a power-up within the game. So in the game, if one of your people dies, mm-hmm. people on your team dies, if you guys complete a certain amount of tasks, uh, that character can come back as Tommy Jarvis, who's one of the few people that can actually, like, kill and stun Jason in the game. So Tommy Jarvis's legacy is cemented. Um, so we're going to do... Two that I know of that Heather doesn't really know, so we're going to breeze through those really quick, and then we'll do two that both of us know, and then we'll wrap things up. Um, so, Oculus is a movie that, like 14 Away, I think is criminally underrated and was one of the earliest works of one of my favorite horror directors, Mike Flanagan, who's gone on to do Hush, he's going to be doing Doctor Sleep, uh, he did Before I Wake, which was okay, not his best, uh, and then he did Haunting Hill House, which is, like, the best thing on Netflix, uh, but he did Oculus with Guardians of the Galaxy's Nebula, Karen Gillan, uh, and also Titans and The Givers, Brenton Thwaites, is that, we think that's how you yeah, pronounce it? Yeah, I don't know, I, just, I know who you're talking about. Brenton Thwaites as her brother, both of them are great, uh, but Karen Gillan is more of the main character leading the cast, um, so these two characters, more or less, are going back to their a childhood home to destroy this mirror that more or less destroyed their childhood. So this mirror kind of sucks the life force out of who's ever in the vicinity, uh, not just people like plants and whatever else, and it plays tricks on people. So uh, her, Karen's character named Kaylee is one of the smartest characters because she comes prepared of... Like, we're going to set up cameras literally everywhere. So when uh, her and her brother actually do get tricked by the mirror, like, nope, this was a trick because we can see on the videotape that we were fooled here. This is our plan, yada, yada, yada. This is how we're going to beat the mirror. Like, I like characters that clearly think ahead and can outsmart their opponent. Now, whether or not they actually do, I'm not going to say here. Um, But Kaylee's great. Uh, I forget what her brother's name is. I just know him as soon-to-be Nightwing. And that episode better be coming soon rather than later. Um, But she's a great character. Now, for a not, like, greatest of the great, but if you're talking in regards to horror comedies, you gotta go with Nada from They Live, played by Rowdy Roddy Piper, just because it's Rowdy Roddy Piper. And he's got that great line about the bubblegum. I'm not gonna repeat it here, but... That's just a classic, and anybody that has a 15-minute long street fight with Keith David has to be on the list of best movie heroes somewhere on the list. Now, to get back to ones that Heather has seen, uh, unfortunately, the sequel to this movie is on both of our lists for Mm. most disappointing movie of these years, but that does not take away from the fact that the original Happy Death Day was one of the most clever and original horror movies that we've seen in a while, And that's due in no small part to the fact that the main character, Tree, as dumb as her name is, was actually a really enjoyable character. I think it's short for Teresa, but yeah. Is it? Yeah, because I know some calls her Teresa, but anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. So, I mean, I, I did like the first, like Nathan said, we both liked the original, the first Happy Death Day, and Tree was a big part of it. Um, she just, the story 
Go ahead and tell the story, and then I'll tell my reason. Okay, so Happy Death Day, for those of you who are unfamiliar, basically take the premise of Groundhog Day and apply it to a slasher of a girl is killed by a ba- literal baby face killer as the mask is wearing a stupid baby mask. It's stupid. Uh, and she has to keep dying every single day mm-hmm. until she can figure out who the killer is. And I'll be honest, this character, more than any other horror character, goes through the biggest arc because, I'll be honest... When she die, starts dying at the beginning, you're kind of okay with it because of how awful and obnoxious her character is. Yeah. But I think that's kind of part of the charm of the movie yeah. is she's literally um, a good person is beaten into her because mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like has to repeatedly die yeah. and learn to become a better person in the process. I think... At first, she's like, she's a girl and she's like in a sorority. And I think she's just one of those girls that's in the sorority that just wants to be fitting in. Like, I don't know. She might be popular, but she's not super popular. And the thing is, I liked about her character and the way she grew is because she she became so frustrated and living in the same day. But she was determined to change her, change her mind, change her attitude and to just um, get help from, there's another character, and just ask for help. How do I change back? How do I have this day not be the same? Because it was like she was waking up and it was her birthday every day. Every day it was September whatever, whatever the date was. Her birthday. And whatever her birthday was. And she was just, every day she'd wake up and realize, no, I want to be a better person. That's kind of what Nathan was saying. Like, I'm going to be a better person. Help me. And then she um, ends up, yeah, it goes on from there. But I I think it's also kind of fun that no matter how, how often the days repeat, she still finds time to have humor in stuff. I'm just like, yeah. well, I'm going to die later today. Might as well have fun with it because there's not going to be any consequences. Like, any of those, like, days repeating premises, there's always a lot of humor that can be played out of it. And the actress, Jessica Roth, uh, really makes the most out of it. Tree is a really funny character as well as a character that ultimately becomes smart. I wouldn't say she's smart off the bat, uh, but she becomes more of an individual as opposed to the mean mm-hmm. girls, cookie cutter, I'm just a ditzy yeah. blonde type character. Um, ultimately falls for the nerd at the end. Um yeah, just exactly what you were saying. I was just gonna say in the way I, the words I was thinking, but definitely she learned what Nathan was saying. She learns to accept herself, but she learns to accept other people for who they are. Like with the, her her boy her new boyfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, any last minute thoughts on either Happy Death Day or Tree before we move on to our mm-hmm. last person? No, I think that's it. Okay. Well, for our last one, it's. Some people argue that this is not a horror movie. I think it's just a different type of horror movie, more of a psychological horror movie, and that is Silence of the Lambs, and our hero, of course, is Clarice. (laughs) Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster in probably her best role. Um, Considering how much of the movie she has to carry on her shoulders, because Hannibal Lecter's not in the movie nearly as much as you think he is, um... I really like Clarice Starling just because she's one of the most intelligent heroes mm-hmm. we have in any horror movie of just like tough, no nonsense. This is the rule book. I'm going to do what it takes to get 
Hannibal. Well, not Hannibal's already locked up. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get Buffalo Bill, not Hannibal. Right. To get the story. Yeah. Because I, I like, she's a detective, right? Kind of yeah. like a detective. Yes. I really like that she, she, like, she pries, but she's not going to be like, oh, give me all, you know, she's not going to be like instant. Like, I need all the information. She is sneaky and sly, but in a kind way. Because she knows how Hannibal is. You know, he's all locked up. He's sensitive and he has his own way of thinking and whatever. But she is, she's smart and she's persistent. But um, she was, she still wants to know his story. She'll also keep going back, keep going back, and searching. Something they don't really make it overt in the movie. It's very subtle how they do it, but I enjoy how they do it is uh, she faces a very uphill battle being a woman in the department. Mm -hmm. And so she, they show in different scenes and montages, she has to work harder than everybody else to get the respect that she deserves. Mm -hmm. And she absolutely earns the respect that she gets because ultimately, yes, she's working with Hannibal, but she's the one that ultimately brings down Buffalo Bill almost single-handedly because the rest of the department goes to the wrong place. But she doesn't back down. She's not afraid. Uh, she's a perfect foil for Hannibal. Of He's completely psychotic, but after a while, she just does not back down. She just basically stands toe-to-toe with him and mm-hmm. doesn't flinch. Yeah, one last thought. Like, when Nathan says to the hill, I would think literally, too. Because mm-hmm. she is literally, like, she gets up so close to his jail cell or whatever that box he's in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, that's just, it kind of, that was when it kind of scared me a little bit. Because I'm just like, oh, no, like, what's going to happen to her? Is she, is he going to, like, grab her? Or, I don't know. I just didn't know what was going to happen. There's a great scene dissection that I've seen of when they first meet each other, um, you see them in the same shot at the beginning and at the end. Other than that, um, just the different camera angles that they use, it's either Hannibal in one shot or her in the other shot, showing mm, that there's some distance yeah. and that there's uh, he's shot in a high angle lens, a high, um, like a low angle, so he looks like he's taller than her, like towering over because she's sitting down in a chair. So the, the way that they shoot it kind of implies that he's superior to her, he's above her, and as the scene progresses... She stands up and they're actually shot at the same eye Mm -hmm. level, meaning that they're equals. And then the scene ends with them being divided by that wall, but they're in the same shot together. They're Mm -hmm. facing each other. They're on the same. They're equals. And I was like, that's a really cool way and a subtle way to show that. And Clarice is one of the best characters Mm because she can go toe to toe with Hannibal, um, one of the best detectives. I wish the rest of the Sons of the Lambs movies were as good as the original, but Clarice is always one of the best of all time when it comes to horror heroes. Uh, have you got any closing thoughts before we wrap this one up? Um, honestly, I didn't know there were more vi- uh, movies. But anyway, that's Animal Rising <laughs> and Red Dragon, I believe, are the other two. Okay. That's it. <laughs> all right. Well, what are your favorite horror heroes? We love hearing from you guys. Let us know in the comments below. Uh, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on whatever audio platform you're listening to us on, whether that's iTunes, Google Music, Spotify, or YouTube. Uh, and if you haven't already, subscribe to us on YouTube at Untraded Media. And stay sharp, movie guys and gals.